Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 1, we observe the popularity of Jesus in Galilee. In chapter 2, the conflict begins as the Jewish leaders attack him and accuse him. In chapter 3, the conflict continues. The hostility seems to grow deeper. Of course, this is something all four gospel accounts have in common. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four tell us about the opposition of the scribes and Pharisees toward Jesus. Mark gives us this history in abbreviated accounts and a rapid writing style. This time, Mark chapter 3. I remind you the format of these classes in Mark. I read through the chapter with brief comments in our effort to cover one chapter each class. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to them, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I want you to notice back in verse 2 that they watched him, and the context shows the Pharisees were watching Jesus to find something they could turn into an accusation against him. We noted in the previous class, Jesus was never guilty of any sin. Not believing this about him, the scribes and Pharisees were persistent in their efforts to defeat Jesus and his cause. Notice that little purpose phrase in verse 2. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Mark and the other gospel writers make the motive clear. The Jewish religious leaders wanted to accuse Jesus, to remove him from the people. I'll talk about the Sabbath later in the class, uh, if time allows. But there is one main idea here in the opening of Mark chapter 3. Though Jesus did nothing wrong, his enemies continued to watch him in an effort to accuse him and defeat him and his cause. In verse 6, the Pharisees meet up with the Herodians against Jesus to destroy him. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem 
and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he directly ordered them not to make him known. We're continuing now in Mark chapter 3 at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Many of us read this passage, and we recall our time in Bible class when we were children, reciting the names of the apostles. Now, notice in verse 14, Jesus' purpose was to send them out to preach. I want to mention again, preaching always held priority over miracles. Miracles were performed as evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that the apostles were actually and authentically sent by him. Seeing a miracle would not save you or guide you through your life. It was necessary for people to hear the truth from God. Preaching always held priority over miracles. Put miracles in the category of evidence. Put preaching in the category of necessity, a priority to hear the good news of Christ, how to be saved, and how to be his disciple. The apostles had apostolic powers, but their primary work was preaching. Let's continue in Mark 3, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemes Mark three, twenty two through thirty. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons, and he called them to him, and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. I believe the main purpose of this account is to document the spiritually serious matter of opposing God in, in a hostile, rebellious fashion that is at the very depth of opposition to God. It wasn't just that Jesus was a threat to their religious power. It wasn't just that they didn't like what he said. There was a hostile, stubborn heart against God, so hardened and rebellious. These scribes who came from Jerusalem were saying that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub or Beelzebub. This isn't just about being mistaken or being guilty of some transgression. This is the most serious spiritual matter of a heart so hard there is direct opposition to God, engaged in blasphemy with such hard and direct opposition to deity, as long as this form of opposition to God continues within a person, one cannot be forgiven. More about that and Jesus' response when we finish our read-through. Here's how the chapter ends. Mark 3, 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about 
at those who sat around him. He said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. One key idea as the chapter ends, obedience and family. Jesus had fleshly family. His spiritual family was and is those who do the will of the Father. All right, some takeaways from Mark chapter 3. Let me talk to you for a moment about the Sabbath, and I want to emphasize the difference between what God said about the Sabbath and what men said and did about the Sabbath. God laid down his law about the Sabbath in the law of Moses for the Jewish nation. And you can read this in Exodus 20 and a few other references in Leviticus 23 through 25. And if you took everything God said in the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath, you could print that out on two pages. Now, the Pharisees took what God said, and with their scribes, they spent generations defining and interpreting what God said about the Sabbath and adding their own specific rules. They had such arrogance, they thought they could help God out. In time, the human definitions and interpretations became the standard instead of God's law. The codified scribal law called the Mishnah, the section on the Sabbath fills over 20 pages. In the Talmud, 64 columns. Do you see what happened? Do you see what happened? They started with God's law, but they left God's law and made their own. And by the time Jesus came, the Sabbath law most people obeyed was not God's law. It was human tradition. And I want to give you some examples of what human tradition dictated about the Sabbath. Here's some quotations once translated. You could swallow vinegar as a remedy for a sore throat, but you could not gargle. If an animal came into your house and one got the animal out, he would be guilty. However, if two people took the animal out, neither would be guilty because neither did the complete job. A woman should not look into a mirror on the Sabbath lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. So it is important to remember the difference between God's law and man's tradition about God's law during the time of Christ. And keep in mind, the scribes and Pharisees considered their tradition equal with, if not superior, to divine law. Aware of all that, and given what has already happened about the Sabbath in chapter 2, the event described in the first part of Mark 3 is not a surprise. And this was all leading to what is described in chapter 3, verse 6. According to the NIV, it says the plot was to kill Jesus. Main lesson for us. We must never imagine that we can make God's law better by adding 
our ideas, our revisions, our improvements. God's law for us in the New Testament is perfect. Something else I want to comment on further. They said about Jesus, he has Beelzebub. Some translations, it reads, he was Beelzebub. Beelzebub was the name of a Philistine god, which means god of the flies. You can read of this in 2 Kings 1, 2, and 6. There is some debate among scholars about the origin of the name, but there is little doubt this was a term of utter reproach, which both Matthew and Luke interpret as equivalent to Satan the prince of demons. You can see this in Matthew 12, 24 and Luke eleven fifteen. Now, there were two parts to this charge. One, that he was Beelzebub, and two, he is casting out demons by the power of the devil. Before we get to the response of Jesus to this charge, let's just think about the charge and how much sense it makes or doesn't make. Let us presume during the time Jesus was on the earth, the devil wanted to dispatch his demons into people. During a short window of time, the devil had this capacity. It was granted to him for one purpose that the power of Jesus over the devil might be manifest. So during this time, the devil wants to dispatch his demons into human bodies. Why would the devil send these demons into people and then give Jesus the power to cast them out? The devil would not gain anything by giving Jesus the power to cast out and punish his own operatives. Why would Satan cast out Satan? And this is exactly the point Jesus made in his response in verses 23 to 27. Satan casting out Satan amounts to Satan defeating his own cause. And the parable in verse 27 points to the work of Jesus to bind Satan and destroy his works. Why would Satan be in league with Jesus? The demons, we have already learned, knew who Jesus was and knew they had nothing in common with deity. Would Beelzebub, Satan, the prince of demons, empower Jesus to cast out the servants of evil and decimate the devil's own household and kingdom of darkness? Obviously not. It makes no sense. Jesus offered this powerful argument in reply to the blasphemy of the scribes. Then listen to verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Every time this passage comes up, there is a certain concern or fear people may have wondering uh, if they have ever committed this sin. I think it's good that people are sensitive 
that their conscience is so active and keen, they want to make sure they have not done this. But let me say to you, if you have a sensitive conscience, if you want to make sure you are right with God, if you're passionate about being right with God, you are not in that state of mind guilty of this sin. These men who said this about Jesus had no such sensitivity and did not say this out of a pure conscience. They said Beelzebub was indwelling Jesus or was Jesus. They said Jesus was empowered by the devil. Now think about this in the light of all we know of God's plan for us completely revealed in the New Testament. If you say that Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons, if you accuse him of being in league with the devil, can you be saved in that state of mind? In order to be saved, you must believe in Christ, accept his claims, confess your faith in him. If you do not believe in him and consider him to be on the devil's side, you cannot be forgiven while in that state of mind. I realize this passage has become the basis for untold numbers of discussions and debates and claims of difficulty, but there is something simple here. There is this simple, personal way to resolve any concerns you might have about this. To say that Jesus, who is God, filled with the Holy Spirit, has an unclean spirit, is to deny the Savior and you cannot deny the Savior and blaspheme the Holy Spirit and at the same time be saved. It is that simple. And I love the way Mark chapter 3 ends in verses 31 through 35. The final idea in the chapter is obedience. Whoever would be in the family related to Jesus, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. Those are the words of Jesus. Obedience brings us into and keeps us in the family of God. I hope that's where you are. Thank you for watching this video.